popular bumper sticker that I used to see all the time. I don't see it so much anymore. But I used to see this bumper sticker all the time that said something to the extent of, the only difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven. The only difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven. This is kind of a, a common popular sentiment that Christians bring to the table when we are talking about the gospel with unbelievers because as we know, as unfortunate as, as it might be, in this country, because people have such a low level understanding of the Christian gospel and of the Christian message, that it's not uncommon for people to think our message is that we are such good people, we're so great, God has saved us, and if you would just be a good person, God would save you too. And so Christians can look very arrogant without even doing anything because of this false understanding of our gospel. And so Christians try to counteract that by communicating this message as, which has, has a kernel of truth to it, which is that, God, I'm not saved because I'm such a great person. I don't think I'm better than you because I'm a Christian. I, that's not why God saved me. And so we do want to communicate to people that you and I are both sinners. And that we've both fallen short of the glory of God. And that God saved a sinner like me and he can save a sinner like you. And that's all good and that's all true. But we do have to be careful with this sentiment and not taking it too far. Because the fact of the reality is that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not just forgiveness. Because God does not leave us where we are. The Christian message is not that God just forgives us our sins and then wipes his hands with us. My work here is finished, they're forgiven. And now the world is just filled with two kinds of people, forgiven people and unforgiven people. That's not the Christian story. God does not leave us where we are. Our forgiveness is only the very beginning of our story. But it is from there, after we are forgiven, that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God then conforms us to the image of Christ. He changes us from the inside out. He empowers us with gifts. He gives us a new creaturely calling. And so we are, in fact, very different, or we should be, from the non-Christian world. We are not just forgiven we are being transformed. One way of putting it, which is going to be relevant to our text this way, is that Christ does not call us based on who we are, but he does change who we are to meet our calling. Christ did not save us because we were righteous people. He died for sinners. But once he saves us, he makes us righteous. We were unqualified. We talked about this last week. We were unqualified for this royal treatment God has given us. God gave us a royal treatment in Christ. He took sinners who did not deserve goodness, who did not deserve mercy, who did not deserve to be treated like royalty, and he treated us in Christ like royalty. He treated us like we were the most important people on earth, even though we weren't. But after that process, after God saves us and justifies us, he does, in fact, change us to conform, to meet the calling he has called us to. A kind of a pop cultural way of saying it, it might be cliche, but it really is true, is that God does not call the qualified, but he does qualify the called. God does not call the qualified, but he does qualify the called. We are going to see this happen externally in the life of Saul today. 
And then we are going to see how that Saul's experience is actually a a typified foretaste of the spiritual experience that all Christians have in Christ Jesus. If you would open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 10. And unlike last week, uh, rather than read this all together, we are going to read it bit by bit. 1 Samuel chapter 10. If you remember where we left off last week. God has elected, he has called Saul to be the first and newest king of Israel. And while he sent Saul on this chase for his father's donkeys, he brought him to Samuel. And Samuel treated him like he was the king, but Samuel has not told him that yet. So Saul is just still at this point in time very confused. Why is Samuel treating me like I'm this really great guy when I'm actually a nobody And then as Saul and his servant leave, Samuel tells the servant to go on down the road because he wants to have a secret meeting with Saul. And that's where we pick up. If you would read just the first verse with me, 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you would follow along for these are the very words of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord Israel. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Well, let's stop there. So Samuel has finally told Saul God's game plan. God has anointed you. God has set you apart. God has chosen you to be the king of Israel. You are going to be king over God's people. Samuel is very clear, by the way. The people still belong to God. He says that you will be the prince over God's people as if God is really still the king technically. And even tells him you will be the king over God's heritage, those whom he has inherited. So Samuel's very clear. These are God's people and they always will be. But you have been made the king over these people and your job is primarily to protect them from their enemies. And he anoints him with the sacred anointing oil, a beautiful fragrance, an oil of fragrance put on the forehead. And what was so significant about this is that the only time we have seen this up to this point, the, the, the anointing of oil becomes an important theme throughout all of Scripture, even in the New Testament. But at this early stage, the only time we've seen it introduced is when someone would become anointed to be a, uh, one of the priests in the, in, the te- in the tabernacle, in the temple. And so the anointing of, of Saul is not to indicate that he is a priest, But it is to show that this new office truly is a sacred divine office. Even though it came later than the priesthood, and even though we learned a couple weeks ago, it actually kind of came by a sinful demand from the people of Israel. Nonetheless, even though it's new and it's novel, God still holds this new institution with utmost sacredness. He sees it as being as sacred as the priesthood. God has given them a king And he says, if you're going to do it, we're going to do it right. So this is now a new office in Israel. The king of Israel has been established. And as we see foreshadowed in Christ, it will never, ever, ever go away. This sacred divine institution. So, but we have to, before we get into the rest of the text, I just want to set us up for a moment. How do you think Saul is feeling in this moment? Right? Is he just, does he just believe Samuel? Oh, okay. Guess I'm king. Where do we begin? Right? Like, what do you think is going on in Saul's head? He, uh, he's just been 
chasing his father's donkeys. He, they're basically lost. They go and ask Sammy, hey, could you help us? And Sammy says, no, I can't help you. I've got better news for you. Uh, you. You know the king of Israel, which doesn't actually exist. You've never even heard of it because it doesn't exist. You're it. You're the king now. You have ultimate authority in all of Israel. What's, what's Saul supposed to do with that? Okay? As a matter of fact, remember we learned when the people of Israel first came demanding a king, part of it was because they've rejected Samuel. What does the text tell us? Samuel's old and his sons are kind of the ones who are taking over and they're corrupt. Samuel's judgment isn't it's kind of being questioned. I mean, we still know he's a reliable prophet. The, the, his servant, for example, Saul's servant said, let's go see Samuel. He's reliable. People trust him. He's a good seer. So it's not like he's completely lost his reputation and credibility. But don't you think it might be a temptation for Saul to think, how do I even know this old guy's telling me the truth? I just show up here accidentally and now I'm the king of Israel? And so... God, through Samuel, knows Saul's going to need some things before he can really do this job well. He's going to need some things before he does this job well. And the first thing he's going to need is assurance. Have I actually been called to this? Is this actually what God wants for me or is Samuel just off his meds? So Samuel... God is going to give him a vision, prophecy into the future to fulfill foreseen events and in the process give Saul a true assurance that this is God's decision, not Samuel's. So let's read about that beginning in verse 2. He really says at the end of verse 1 that there will be signs. This will be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you. And what are these signs? Well, we see three of them. Verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Samuel tells, if we, we work kind of backwards, Samuel tells Saul, I'm going to send you somewhere, don't worry, there's a lot to learn, we're going to make some sacrifices, I'm going to help you. But before that, he gives him, as he makes his way back home to his father, three things are going to happen to you today. And if these three things happen, and you know I can't orchestrate this, I couldn't have foreseen this, I couldn't have orchestrated this, if these three things happen, then you can know for sure that God is the one who called you. Now what are these three things? The first sign is that two men, not long after Samuel leaves, are going to find Samuel and say, hey, your father's worried, he doesn't care about the donkeys, and guess what, good news, they've been found. We're sending them back, we're taking care of the donkeys, you just get home right away. 
And then as he continues to leave from those two men, he will eventually reach the region where there is a monument known as the Oak, Oak of Tabor. And there are going to be three men who are going up to Bethel who are clearly going up for sacrificial offerings. Bethel was a place of worship, a high place that had a place of worship. And these men have all three offerings with them. They have grain offering, bread. They have the wine offering, the drink offering, and they have a, the goats, the sacrificial offering. And they are going to see Saul and his servant, and out of compassion, they're going to say, hey, we got two guys on journey, you take two pieces of bread. And then lastly, once he finally gets into what would be the region of his hometown, where people know him, when he finally gets home, a group of prophets are going to meet him, and they are going to sing worship music and prophesy through song, and he is even going to join them by the power of the Holy Spirit in prophesying and in worshiping. So these are the three things. There's no way Samuel could have orchestrated these things last second. There's no way he could have foreseen these things. These are just visions from God that if they come true, Saul can have assurance. Yes, God has called me. And look briefly with me at verse 9. We're going to discuss verse 9 in more detail in a minute. But look at what verse 9 says. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. So the text doesn't go into great detail as to how it happened, but the text tells us in a swooping motion that yes, Samuel, forgive me, Saul experienced all of these things. So God gave Saul these signs and they were all fulfilled in his journey. And we do know, by the way, there's some uh, geographic debate as to where some of these regions were. There's not a, a true consensus as to exactly how long his journey was and exactly where he went from. But based on all the evidence that we have, it was absolutely definitely doable to make this trip in one day's time. So Samuel gives him these amazing signs and they all happen in a single day. Just boom, boom, boom. So what does that remind us? God wanted Saul to know, yes, this is my plan. This is my will. You can have assurance that I am with you and that I have chosen you. You don't need to be confused or doubtful or scared. This is my choice. This is an act of grace and mercy that God condescends to Saul and says, I have chosen you and I have given you something to have great assurance that it is me. So we see God gives Saul assurance and he really needs that to do the job well. He's not going to be a good king if he's constantly doubting whether he's actually supposed to be here, whether this was all a big mistake. He needs this to do his job well. God has given it to him. But we see God has qualified him, God has helped him to become the king that God has chosen him to be in another way. We already read it, verse 9, through a heart change. So after Samuel relays all this, what happens? Verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. I mean, we're talking, that, the text is being very clear. This is instantaneous change. Like, okay, you, you got it, old man. Turn, new person. He gives him a new heart. Now, I would recommend we not read this the way we're going to elaborate on later on in the sermon about necessarily some kind of salvation change. But what I think this is most likely communicating is that he's given him a, a kingly heart. He's, he's literally, he's turned him into a king. Remember, this is a young boy. And he's not like a, a, a prodigy. He's not the son of a king who's supposed to be king, and so he's kind of learning the job along his way. This is a boy who has never had being a king on his radar. He has no formal training. You know, what, are, what are Saul's geopolitical stances on foreign affairs? 
You think he has a clue? This is someone who's probably not interested in being a king. There is no such thing as a king. Doesn't even know what it is. Doesn't know what it entails. This is a person who's completely unqualified for this job. And God has now called an unqualified person. But God has not left him there. As soon as Samuel turns, forgive me, it's, I'm, I do that all the time, Saul, Samuel. As soon as Saul turns, God gives him a kingly heart. This is someone who now has a great passion and a great desire for this job. He has made him into a king on the spot. Theologians like to call this, by the way, if you want fancy words, theologians call this monergism. This is a monergistic work of God. And what that means is that the power, the inner gauge, where we get the second part of that word, is mono, is single. It is God alone who enacts this change. The text is very clear. God did not meet with Saul and negotiate this heart change with him. Right? It wasn't like, you know, Abraham and God sitting and, and, and talking it out. God didn't say, listen... Saul, so I, I really don't think you're ready for this. I would like to change your heart. Can I have your permission to do such a thing? And Saul thinks, can I think on it? This was an irresistible, monergistic movement of God. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard in the Christian church growing up that God is a gentleman. And God would never do something against your will. Because he doesn't intrude like that. He doesn't barge like that. He's a gentleman. Well, God is gentle when he needs to be, but he is not a gentleman. God is unafraid and unembarrassed to break through any wall you have put up and change your heart without asking for your permission. And that's a good thing. God changes Saul's heart. He called a man who was unqualified, but he is beginning to qualify him. He's given him assurance, and he's now given him a kingly heart. He's making him a new man. But we see the final thing that God does, and this is the only of the three signs. This is the only one that the text chooses to elaborate for us. God gives him empowerment. God gives Saul new giftings and new powers. Look at verses 10 and on. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and, the pro and prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to another, one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. We see Saul's new heart change already working. He already has a very mature humility and discernment to him. I think he recognizes, I don't know if this is going to go well, if my uncle says, hey, where have you been? Oh, I met Samuel. He made me king of Israel. I'm your boss now. He, he has the discernment and the wisdom to say, you know what, let's let Samuel take care of the announcement part. Let's let Samuel. So I'm just going to just only share the information that my uncle needs to know. Yeah, so we asked Samuel. He told us they were found. We came home. True story. Not the whole truth, but it's true. 
We see his new heart change kicking in, this great sign of humility and maturity and discernment. But the primary point of this portion of the text is this amazing moment where he joins this school of prophets to worship and prophesy among them. Now, we don't know much about this group. We see throughout the New Testament these kind of what I like to call small p prophets, where they're not given nearly the attention or the authority that say, Daniel, Moses, Isaiah, right? They're not like these big prophets. But all throughout the Old Testament, we have these kind of no-name, smaller groups of prophets. We've already encountered one, if you recall, with Eli. Remember, before Samuel was old enough to receive visions from God and tell Eli his fate, this unnamed prophet came and told Eli his fate. And I argued that because this guy was somewhat unknown, I don't think Eli even knew whether it was, actually, it was true until Samuel confirmed it. So we have just some group of prophets we don't know much about. The, the best we can understand is that this kind of would have been something similar to like a seminary. These were people in Israel who were showing signs that God had given them the gift of prophecy. They had an interest in the ministry. And so they would come together usually under a prophet or under a teacher to learn the ways of the law, to study God's word, to compose musical scores for worship and to prophesy. And so as Saul comes into his hometown, into the region of where his family lived, this college of prophets meets him, and he does something he's never done before. That's he joins them. He prophesies with them. He sings and worships with them. And this is clearly uncharacteristic of Saul. And we know that primarily because the text tells us that this only happened because the Spirit came upon him. But we also know it's uncharacteristic because the people in the town see it and they don't know what to do with this. That's Saul? That's, that's Kish's boy? No. This is clearly uncharacteristic of him. Now, there is debate. We don't really know whether this, their questions are optimistic and joyful or if they're scorning. There's debate about that. But the key thing that we are being told is that they're surprised. That's what we need to hone in on. They are surprised. This is not who Saul used to be. This is not the Saul that everybody knows. He's a different person. And they ask, is he among the prophets? Since when did Saul have the gift of prophecy? Since today. As a matter of fact, it even became a proverb or a proverbial saying. Maybe you could even think of it as an idiom. What that means is that from then on out, whenever something happened in Israel that was just totally unexpected... Just someone just showed up in such a way, they just like changed overnight or something happened. It was very bizarre. It was like, well, I mean, is Saul among the prophets? It became just an expression, a phrase for how life can just really throw you curveballs sometimes. That's how surprising it was to them to see Saul, who was not a prophet and maybe not even ministerially minded, dancing and worshiping and singing and prophesying with the weird seminary kids. What do we see here? The Holy Spirit has come upon Saul and empowered him. Given him gifts he didn't used to have. Given him a power he didn't used to have. Again, continuing to make him something he wasn't. So what do we see in the life of Saul? We see God has called an unqualified man to a high position. But God has not left him there. God has began the work of qualifying him for the position he was called to. So in other words, God did merely, not merely pick Saul. Saul doesn't just go around and tell people, you know, the only difference between you and me is I was picked and you weren't. 
Well, no, that's not the case, actually, because you were given miraculous signs. I wasn't. You were given a new heart. I wasn't. You were given the power of the Spirit. I wasn't. There's a lot of differences now between Saul and just the average Benjamite. He's not just merely picked. He's a new man. God is working on him. God is equipping him. And as I told you, I think this is typifying of the Christian experience. I think this is our important reminder that God, who has not called you to be the physical king over literal Israel, but he has called you to a high position. The New Testament refers to us as ambassadors for Christ, administers of the new covenant. We are called a nation of priests. We are a royal and holy nation, children of the Most High God. You've been called to a sacred duty. And this is not a job description that has no qualifications, no rules. When you become a Christian, you embrace a life of rules and expectations. And guess what? You're not qualified for them. You can't do them. But God calls us to it anyway, and then he begins the work in us to equip us to do it. That which we could not do before, we are ready to do again. And everything that Saul experienced is typified in the New Testament Christian conversion experience. Let's begin in no particular order with heart change. Saul experienced a kind of heart change. We too experience a heart change. This is a famous theme in the Old Testament, I would remind you. You can write down, we won't turn there today, you can write down Ezekiel chapter 36. Right before the famous Valley of Dry Bones event, as God is prophesying to Ezekiel, new covenant salvation, what he will do with his people, he tells Ezekiel, I will remove their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. God is this incredible surgeon who spiritually removes our old heart and gives us beating fleshly hearts. But one of the clearest ways we see that even outside of Ezekiel 36, is in Paul's discussion of the symbolism of circumcision. Turn to Romans chapter 2. This necessary and needed change of heart is so important to God that this is one of the purposes that circumcision served, was to show us and remind us and point us to our need for a new heart. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. The context is important here. Paul is speaking to an arrogant Jewish people who think that just because they're the Jews, then that makes them saved, that makes them everything God ever wants. And Paul's trying to explain, no, like you need faith in Christ, you need obedience. So notice what he says in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then this is where it gets in the key. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So Paul is now telling us what circumcision has become. How has it been spiritually fulfilled? Circumcision is no longer a physical thing for us. 
It's not outward. It's not physical. Circumcision is not outward and physical, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So I would tell you, as a minister of the gospel, that if you are in this room, if you are not circumcised, you are not saved. But I don't mean that the way the Judaizers meant that. I meant you need a new heart. When Stephen was stoned, we often refer to Stephen as our, the first Christian martyr. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they killed Stephen, you know it was one of the things he said, one of the many things he said before they decided to put him to death? He referred to them as those who are uncircumcised of heart. Your physical circumcision doesn't matter if your heart is not circumcised. So what is circumcision pointing us to? It is pointing us to this great need as the people of God, as believers, to have a new heart. So again, God does not merely take someone whose heart is hardened against him, whose heart rejects him and rejects his son and says, okay, I'll just forgive that person. And now we've just got a world of forgiven and unforgiven people, but they're all hard-hearted. No difference between me and you, but God has cosmically forgiven me. No, there's a big difference. I have a heart of flesh. You have a heart of stone. That's a big difference. My heart's circumcised. Your heart's uncircumcised. That's a big difference. You see, you are not just forgiven. God has changed you. He has given us a new heart. That's why the Bible loves to talk about these cataclysmic titles like Jesus says, we must be born again. You're not just your old self forgiven. You are a new creature. We, uh, Paul talks about in the book of Titus of this concept of regeneration. You've been regenerated. You've been restarted. You were unplugged and plugged back in and you're working now. We have new hearts. We are new creatures. We are born again. That's how God begins to prepare you for this high calling of being Christian. He gives you a new heart. A heart that desires to please him. A heart that loves him. A heart that accepts his son. This is why Romans chapter 8 talks about how without this new heart, without the Holy Spirit, we cannot obey the law. But since we have them, we can. The Christian position, when you are called to be a Christian, you are called to obedience. And that is something you actually in your own strength cannot do. But God doesn't leave you in your own strength. He changes us. Saul had a heart change. We too have a heart change. Saul also had empowerment from the Holy Spirit. He was given gifts from the Holy Spirit. And guess what we experience as Christians? Empowerment from the Holy Spirit. Turn to over one book to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. To the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 4 through 11 with me. First Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, etc., etc. All these are empowered by one and each the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. When you are called to be a Christian, you are called to a life of service. You are called to serve God, to serve the church, and to serve neighbor. And that's something you're unqualified to do when God calls you. But after he calls you, after you come to faith, you receive the Spirit of God who uses his own knowledge, his own discernment, his own wisdom to give each person a portion of gifts so that we can build up the body of Christ, serve neighbor, and properly serve God. You see, Paul received, forgive me, Saul received this empowerment of the Spirit. He was given these new gifts and it was a surprise to everyone around him. The beauty of the New Testament is that this empowerment from the Holy Spirit, this is not something reserved for the really, really important people. For the kings. What does the text say? Each one. The same Spirit who empowers everyone. The Spirit, if you're in Christ today, has come upon you. The Spirit has empowered you. The same Spirit, the book of Romans says, who rose Jesus from the dead now lives within you. That's power. That's a power you didn't have before. So again, you're not just forgiven. You're empowered. You're transformed. God is creating us. He's making us into something new. And let's end with this last one, this issue of assurance. As I said, it would be very difficult for Saul to really be a good king if he just the whole time just felt, I don't know if this is actually my job. I don't know if this is actually God's will. And I would argue it's probably difficult to truly be a Christian if you don't know you are one. Does God really love me? Am I really saved? Do I just, have I deceived myself? Do I just think I've been called to this royal calling? If I deceived myself, I would argue you we could go to a lot of scriptures. We won't do all of them today, but I think the Bible tells us a lot that you can have assurance of God's love for you. Let's look at just one. If you will turn, continue to turn back towards the end of your New Testament to 2 Peter. So you'll go past all of Paul's letters, past First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon. You'll pass Hebrews and James. And then you'll get to Peter's epistles, First and Second Peter. Second Peter Chapter 1. This is such a glorious section of Scripture we are going to read. Beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Peter says this. Speaking of God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Let's just stop there. Let me just remind you again of everything we've been saying can be summarized in this. You're not just forgiven. That's great. That's amazing. But His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. God has prepared you to live a Christian life in all godliness. He's empowered you to do that. 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Again, that's a royal position. That's a high position that you've been called to. And you've been empowered to do it. But let's continue. These, are all, these comments, by the way, are all outside of my notes. So it's free. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises... So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So notice what Peter said here. Peter is telling us now that you've been justified by your faith in Christ Jesus, it's time to supplement that faith with virtue and godliness and love and perseverance and all of those things he said. He says, and if you don't do that, then you've blinded yourself to what God has done in your life. And so he says, so don't be blind, but see, perceive, perceive and know what Christ has done for you. Confirm your calling and election. And how do we do that? It's through the supplementation of our faith with all of these virtues. So here's what I'm saying in short. One of the greatest, most important, most helpful ways for you to confirm your calling and election is simply to do this. Look at your life. Has God transformed you? Are you new? It should be the goal of every Christian that if you were to take, say, five-year segments, at the end of every five years, you should be able to say this. I'm not who I ought to be. But hallelujah, I'm not who I was. I'm not who I ought to be, but hallelujah, I'm not who I was. Now, am I saying that if you haven't seen this incredible, drastic change, that you're definitely not saved? No, Peter himself doesn't say that. But he will describe you as a blind person who's forgotten. That's a place of instability, of unknowing. But by pursuing righteousness, by seeing the change in our lives, that is how God confirms to you, you're my child, I'm working on you. I'm not a big fan of Facebook anymore for a variety of reasons, but there's one thing I still love about Facebook. They have these things called memories. And what, they, what it does is that, for those of you who have it, that whatever day it is, say it's May 1st, Facebook will show you something you posted on May 1st many years ago. And I love that. I cannot tell you how many times Facebook has showed me a memory and I thought to myself, I was such an idiot. I was so immature. But hallelujah, I'm not who I was. And I understand maybe 10 years from now, if I, Facebook still even exists and I still have it and I haven't been banned from it yet, I'll look back today and think, I am such an idiot. I was such an idiot. But hallelujah, I'm not who I was. 
Confirm your calling and election by supplementing your faith with brotherly love and righteousness and perseverance and godliness and steadfastness and self-control. If you want to be assured that God has called you, obey Him. 1 John chapter 2 says, This is how we know we love God. We keep His commandments. If you, do you love God? You truly know Him? Do you truly know Him? Do you truly love Him? What does 1 John say? What does Peter say? Look at your life. Your life will tell you a whole lot more about where your values lie than your confession. This is not, by the way, this is not a scary thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to beat you over the head with sinfulness. It's the exact opposite. I'm trying to encourage you. We can feel assured and confident that even though we have times of discouragement, we have times of doubt, and we have times where we do. Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves, and we have to look inwardly sometimes. But the scriptures, I think, testify that you can look in and find assurance. You can find it. Yes, I am loved by God. He has called me. He has purchased me from my sins. I can know this. God wants you to know it. He wants you to be assured and affirmed in His love and His calling of you. In conclusion, summarize with this, God calls each and every one of us to a holy calling. He has anointed us into a holy role. But He does not leave us as we are. He conforms us into worthy recipients of His grace and prepares us for our role as ambassadors and covenant children. 